if this CBDC becomes as entrenched in the way you've described, like you're literally talking about incentivizing potentially gender reassignment surgery to go and get a cheap loan for an automobile, something like that, right? right? So it's like a, a cultural corruption as a result of this embedded financial corruption. Yeah. And And you uh, think about who's okay. So then the politicians are going to be creating that narrative, right? And that's going to be largely driven by the media because that influences voters. mm -hmm. And you say, okay, who are the puppeteers with the politicians? And then you start, you got to start looking at the global elite. You got to start looking at the world economic forum and all those people Mm -hmm. that in my opinion are, are the ones that are actually pulling the strings and the politicians for the most part are just kind of the useful idiots. Yeah, And then you have to look at their objectives, Robert, right? And we know that their objectives, they have two main objectives, decrease energy use and decrease the population. Right. So if you get control over society, you already control the media, you already control the politicians to a large degree. So if you get control over society in the ways we're referring to, how do you leverage that to reduce the population? And how do you leverage that to reduce energy use? And one of the things is the carbon footprint, but okay, how do they reduce the population? And that's by incentivizing people to have fewer kids. Well, Mm -hmm. okay, if more people are transitioning to the opposite Mm -hmm. sex, Mm -hmm. does that increase the birth rate or decrease the birth rate? Right. Then you go down that rabbit hole. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them. As again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility, and it's a really a, a brand new UI UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. 
Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. George Gammon, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Thanks for having me back. It's always fun to talk, Robert. Yeah, man. Uh, we had a great conversation last time about the role of sound money in constraining government overgrowth. And really excited to continue that conversation with you today. Um, and I think one of the, the places we wanted to start here was talking about the idea of voting, right? Like most people, I think, especially living in liberal democracies, think that it, there's just the vote, right? You go out and vote for your local politician mm -hmm. and they are supposed to go out and represent your interests and try to express your preferences uh, in, in the jurisdiction and in, in legal frameworks and whatnot. But there's another kind of form of voting that a lot of uh, authors, libertarians have described as just be, really being the market process, right? Which is... Yeah. You know, in the U.S., one dollar, one vote. So what you buy is like a signal to the marketplace or a vote in the marketplace to produce more of that thing. And then what you sell is a, a vote to produce less of the thing. And it, it's my opinion that that marketplace voting mechanism is much more of a truly grassroots democratic mechanism than what we traditionally associate with the term voting. Yeah. Um, and I guess we can... where you go too, Robert, right? Like if you, yeah. if you go to uh, Texas or Florida from California, mm -hmm. you're basically signaling to the marketplace of politicians right. that, Hey, I like the policies in Florida better than I like the policies in California. That's a great point. So to try and keep these two different forms of voting in their own boxes, uh, I'd propose the term voting with ballots which is actually voting for your local politician or uh, senator or whatever it may be versus voting with wallets and, and with voting with actions. Yeah. With feet, you know, we say voting with your feet a lot, but that's really voting with your wallet. It's like you're moving your mm -hmm. property and assets to another jurisdiction. So it's part of the tax base. Yeah. Um, so I think what, yeah, what we should talk about here is just the role of each of these forms of voting, voting with ballots versus voting with wallets in um, constraining government action towards people, like which one is more important, or really just how each one operates, because they both have their place. Yeah. Um, but I would say, again, mo it is my opinion, I don't know if you agree with this or not, it seems like most people are only aware of voting with ballots. They don't even typically think of voting with their wallets quite so much, but I would argue that voting with wallets is more significant than voting with ballots. I agree. Unless people are pushed to a a certain point, mm -hmm. and then everyone 
you know, has got that point where they'd be like, you know what, I'm out. Mm-hmm. The, the homeless has gotten too bad. The drug use, the just the government going in the wrong direction, the taxes, whatever it is for you, then you know you're moving to Texas or you're going to to Florida or maybe outside of the United States. And I think that dovetails well on our last conversation because that was really about sound money in the past, mm-hmm. really focusing on the gold standard and then the fiat standard that we've moved into more recently, and then how that may or may not have constrained the size of government. And uh, then in this conversation, kind of moving forward into what may be a Bitcoin world on a Bitcoin standard. And as we know, that does differ uh, significantly Mm -hmm. from gold, and it gives you more optionality. And how might that world in the future give us more of an opportunity to limit the size of government or at least prevent what I would call, quote unquote, big government? Mm-hmm. And that's a term that we should probably define as well, because it's very ambiguous and kind of, I think where we left off in the last conversation, and I think what would make it easy for a starting point here is to just exclusively focus on the amount of tax revenue generated by the government, mm-hmm. because we can sit here and talk about, you know, the fed quote unquote money printing and M2 and all these things. And that really takes us down a rabbit hole. But I don't even think we have to worry about deficit spending or quote unquote money printing or monetization. We can just focus on the the tax revenue mm-hmm. because just the tax revenue going to the federal government is usually about 18% of overall GDP. And then when you tack on state and local, and now all of a sudden you're up by 25, maybe 30%. And I think regardless of your definition of big government, most of the people watching this or listening to this podcast would agree that if government is accounting for 25 or 30 percent of the economic output mm-hmm. that's bad <laughs> we don't want that. that that that's that's big government and that's coming straight from taxes yeah so if we really want to get serious about trying to think through how gold or silver or bitcoin would uh, would prevent government from getting that size. And again, I think that's different than limiting the size of government. And this is one thing that I think would make things far more clear is if we understand that, yes, any sound money is going to limit the size of government, meaning that uh, you know if, if, if GDP is 100 bucks, if you have sound money, you're most likely not going to get up to 90 uh, dollars of GDP from the government. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that we don't get big government. So constraining government and eliminating big government, I think are two completely separate things. Hmm. And so that's again, why I want to take it back to ex- exclusively the taxation, because I think we all can agree that if society wants the government to tax them to a large degree, And that's what society is going to get, even with sound money. So now we got to think about how Bitcoin, the ability to put your entire net worth in your back pocket uh, outside of the banking system, how would that limit the amount of revenue going to the government to prevent it to not only constrain the uh, size of government, but also to eliminate 
its ability to get quote unquote big, yeah. like we see right now exclusively through tax revenue as a percentage of GDP. And I think that goes right into your question about voting with your pocketbook, voting with your feet, or voting with your actions. Mm -hmm. So if we can imagine a world where no one needs to store their wealth in a bank, like we had back in the 1800s with gold, and you have ultimate mobility. So you could have $100 million, you could have a billion dollars, whatever it is, and you could literally, and no one would even know, but you could just throw that right in your back pocket, hop on a plane, and in three hours, you could be somewhere else where they're not going to have, or they're going to have uh, a government that's maybe more in line with your worldview, to put it mildly. Uh, so if the majority of the people exercise that option, or not even the majority, but even if a, a good percentage of the overall population exercise that option, I absolutely think that would uh, not only constrain the size of government or constrain mm -hmm. government spending, but it would also prevent or eliminate the possibility to the greatest degree we can of government becoming quote unquote big. So then I think the question, I would like to pose this to you, mm -hmm is what percentage of the American population do you think would exercise that option? And how do we as content creators uh, maybe increase that percentage? I know, I know what I'm doing on my channel is try to get people to actually start preparing right now. So if, if you do want to exercise that option in maybe a year or two or three, when they introduce, or if they introduce a central bank digital currency, which we may talk about, mm -hmm. um, or if, if you know if they don't like, or if you don't like what the government is doing as far as taxation or whatever it may be, you've got that line in the sand where you're going to vote with your feet, go to another jurisdiction where they're not going to be able to access your purchasing power. And regardless of what the Americans are voting for, it doesn't impact you. And enough people do that, then all of a sudden the government's got to say, whoa, 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 we've got to back off. Yeah, because we're pushing too many people out of the country or out of our, our tax jurisdiction, which, again, is different for Americans, because let's remember, Americans are taxed on their citizenship That's right. and not on their residency. So it makes yeah. it even more complicated. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and just to back it up a little bit to the terminological stuff, um, when we say big government constraining government, like th there's an inherent value judgment here. Like where do yeah, you draw yeah. the line between big yep. government over? And so I don't know, I don't know that there's a, a precise objective answer to that necessarily, but if you just would go with the numbers that you were putting forth there in a jurisdiction where 30% of your income is taxed, right? So 30% of the fruits of your labor are going to uncle Sam here in the United States. Um, just via direct explicit taxation. We're not, we're not talking about inflation and the, the dilution of purchasing power yet. That is equal to working. That's 30% of the year, right? Working to pay uncle Sam. So that's right. roughly four months out of every year that every American citizen is laboring just to pay the tax bill 
before they even pay themselves. So mm-hmm. again, I don't know if that qualifies as big government. Everyone would have probably have their own version of what they would consider to be big, but I say I would say that's a pretty large bill for a non-productive enterprise, right? They're not adding anything to productivity. Yeah, uh, I think it's it's also true when you look at the overall economy because if they are, if we can agree that government is very inefficient mm-hmm. and they're actually a drag on economy, well said another way is the is if the government is spending three dollars of every ten dollars that are mm-hmm. spent in the economy, is that big government or how much of a drag is that going to be on the the private sector? Yeah. And I would say it's definitely enough of a drag for us to be concerned. And you know, where I kind of draw the line in my head is going back to the 1800s part of the Fed when we had uh, government spending under a dollar mm-hmm. of every $10. So if we have $10 of economic output, the government was responsible for less than a dollar mm-hmm. where now they're responsible for probably $5. And so where I kind of draw the line in my sand in the sand is at 20 and above that's where we're in the danger zone yeah because that's based on my research when the amount of m2 money supply increase will most likely result in consumer price inflation mm-hmm. the, the which to your point is again another tax on yeah. the, the average joe and jane so i think under 10 is optimal 10 to 20 is gray area Mm-hmm. And 20 and above is danger zone. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. And um, I want to also decompose the term society because it's very easy for us. I call this, you know, lower resolution versus higher resolution thinking. So if we say, oh, if society votes for X, then X will happen. But we have to always remember that society is composed of individuals. Right. So what we typically mean when we say if society votes for more taxation, we mean that the majority of individuals within a society vote for more taxation. Yeah, 51%. 51%, right? Simple majority. But that taxation is everywhere and always a redistribution of wealth, right? This is not government generating. Again, it's a non-productive enterprise. They're not creating any new wealth. They're just moving wealth from the hands of one group to the hands of another group. Now, it's, it's you know, when you look at history, it's kind of uh, been a, a wrestling match in a way. Sometimes it's the people with a lot of wealth that are creating the laws. And sometimes people that are economically dispossessed get a hold of that democratic uh, apparatus and vote themselves money. And I can't remember who said it, but um, something to the effect that when people figure out that they can vote themselves free money, that's like stage one in the death of a democracy. Yeah. So... I, and, and when you asked the question earlier, like what percentage of Americans would need to, I guess, decide that big government had gone too far? Maybe they went north of 20% into the danger zone and decided to leave. Yeah. Um, I, th- I would tend to think it's more a percentage of capital actually than individuals. Because if, mm. if it was 51% of the people lowered lower in the economic hierarchy, let's say, that are voting themselves, quote unquote, free money. This is a great point. And people in the top 10%, 5%, 1%, whatever it is, just say, no thanks, and decide to leave. Well, then that that could be enough, right? Depending on what, what, how much wealth that cohort controlled. 
And so that has a lot to do with the concentration of wealth and all these things. So how much, what percentage of tax they paid? So like, let's just assume for a moment that the upper 1% pay 90% of the taxes. And then that upper 1% is like, okay, government, if if you get any better, bigger, we're out. Right. And even though that's just 1% of the population, the government is still going to stop everything they're doing saying, whoa, 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 okay, <laughs> we, we got we to slow our roll here pronto. <laughs> yes. And that doesn't necessarily have to be 20 or 30 or 40% of the population. Because last time I checked, 50% of Americans p- paid pretty much zero tax. That's right. As far as, as, far as income tax. Yeah. Because of child credits and, and, and other things. Yeah. So I guess then the question becomes, what would it take for that top, let's just say 5% or something like that to, to move and leave the United States. And then how would they get out of the tax net? Right? Because mm-hmm. even if you're, let's say someone who has a hundred million dollars in Bitcoin, um, or even if you have a- any wealth in Bitcoin and you're like, screw it, I'm going to go to El Salvador or I'm going to mm-hmm. go to Dubai, or let's say Dubai now all of a sudden is, is Bitcoin friendly or something, or they use that as their local currency. And you're like, I like the way their the direction their economy is headed. I like their government. It's more free market capitalism. I'm going there. Okay, fine. But you still got to pay tax to the U.S. government. Hmm. So I don't know. How, how do you think that would work? And even if people move, just using Americans as an example, does that actually move the needle for the the government's ability to occupy more and more of the economy if that's what the voters at least 51 percent of them want right yeah you're correct so the united states has what is called a territorial taxation system right one of the few advanced economies that does have it so it's attached only, to your, yeah, only. The, the, maybe the, the only the, yeah. the united states is the only country in the world other than some little teeny weeny country in africa yeah okay so only economy with a territorial tax system that's attached to your citizenship rather than your actual location. Your residency. So, yeah. Yeah, your resi- so in order to, you know, liberate yourself from that tax scheme, you actually have to renounce your citizenship at some point. And even then I'm pretty sure the U S has the exit tax on anyone with above a $2 million net worth. Yep. So even to exit, so it's truly crazy if you if you break it down to say I'm not okay with you stealing from me and I want to move to another jurisdiction, you are being subjected to the theft of the exit tax. So it's the rough analogy is someone breaking into your home, putting a gun to your head, and saying, you know, pay me so I don't steal your stuff, something like that. Like it, it's re- really bad. Um, now. I agree that you don't, you're not able, Bitcoin doesn't enable you to just somehow liberate yourself from that scheme, but it does give the individual a lot more negotiating leverage, right? And that they can move this capital independent of the fiat currency system so they can circumvent capital controls. Uh, A lot of the mechanisms that states traditionally would use to say seize the assets of someone to pay the exit tax or any of these other things become much less enforceable if you're using Bitcoin properly. Yeah. So it's not uh, a black or white change or like the introduction of Bitcoin just all of a sudden frees you from this tax scheme. You're probably still going to get 
the the letters, right? Send me money, et cetera, et cetera. But the individual has more optionality, uh, more tools in the toolkit, if you will, to prevent their assets from being seized, right? So you can think of Bitcoin as like, again, all of I'm I'm presupposing a lot of things here. Like you've custodied it properly. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. It's not sitting on an exchange somewhere, you know, like that's, that's no good to you. Um, it gives the individual Bitcoin in proper custody gives the individual a form of seizure resistant wealth, or perhaps even seizure proof wealth. Hmm. And so that really changes the balance of power and the relations between the individual and the tax authority that they're reporting to. Yeah. So and I, um, I want to be clear, we're, we're not suggesting that anyone break the law. It, it's just, no. we're, we're kind of spitballing it here. And, uh, you know, I, I'd encourage everyone to abide by the law and whatnot. And, you know, I want to assume that everyone's going to do that. But uh, we're just kind of going through thought experiments here as to how it would be in the realm of possibilities. How might this play out? Yeah, none of this is advice of any kind, but it's uh, call it an exploration of the game theoretic aspects of Bitcoin and how it changes the relationship of the individual to the state over time. And as we'll get into here, how it changes the revenues of the state, because all of a sudden, um, you know, if a state is accustomed to being able to directly tax citizens at will, and if that's not enough, they can indirectly or implicitly tax them through inflation uh, all of a sudden, that second option in a Bitcoin world is much less effective, right? Because if you're going to try to tax people through inflation, it actually creates these gigantic financial incentives for those individuals holding the currency that's being debased to hold their liquid savings in anything other than that currency. And there's some math behind that we can get into. Um I, I wrote yeah, that, that. That's I think that's a different rabbit hole because now what we're doing is we're assuming that the government is going to extract wealth from the community above and beyond taxes, which I I, I totally I totally get. Uh, that's definitely yeah. a factor. But just to be clear, we're adding some complexity uh, yeah. to the discussion right now. Quite a bit of complexity, and uh, so if we want to shelf that last discussion. I think the bottom line for the the viewers is if you want to think about how Bitcoin will uh, impact society and maybe the size of government in the future, I think you should start by asking yourself how it would impact the amount of tax revenue going to the government, mm-hmm. assuming that that 51%, that mob rule in a sport jacket, as Doug Casey calls it, is going to continue to vote or uh, the government taxing society to the degree to which they have voted for that over the past about four decades. Yeah. So, so then what we do is we move on to the discussion as to if the government wanted even more, you know, how do they, how do they go about that? And is that possible or how is that possible under the current system and how would it be possible or not possible under a Bitcoin standard. Yeah. And we can phase into this. So we can start with just the explicit tax piece. And I think it's actually important to start there because it's much more difficult to quantify inflation. Like again, CPI, 
totally arbitrary number. It does does not reflect the actual loss of purchasing power for individuals because it's all, and Mises made this point in human action, like the, the actual debasement of purchasing power that you suffer as an individual saving in a fiat currency undergoing debasement is as subjective as the things you seek to buy. So it's, it's a loss of, purchasing power. You could think of it as subjective as valuation itself. It's like, what are the things you want to buy? How fast are they increasing in price? Well, that's how much purchasing power you've lost. It's as subjective as the things the individual is seeking to purchase. Now we've com completely abstracted all that complexity away and just called CPI the number. And now people think CPI is the inflation rate, but it's actually provably impossible to have a universal inflation rate because inflation in terms of the loss of purchasing power, again, is as subjective as valuation itself. So if we just focus and on everyone buys different stuff, that's what I'm saying. Your inflation right. rate is going to be different than my inflation rate. Everyone has their own coefficient and it's unique to their preferences. So CPI, like this is a very important point. It's totally bogus to the core. Like you can't, it's impossible to have a single universal inflation metric. It's just, it's not possible. Um, so if we, if we kind of shelf that for a minute and we just look at explicit taxation um, and I'm going to draw on a piece that I wrote here, it's, it's titled sovereignism part two, Bitcoin. You know, one, while you're doing that, Robert, bank. another thing yep. that I want to yep. mention that uh, I, I'd love to get your feedback on are tax brackets. And I don't think most people give this enough thought. I did a video mm -hmm. just the other day where I compared the tax brackets in 2020 compared to 2022. Mm -hmm. And they went up, as you would expect, but they only went up by 4%. So let's think about this. If, at, if in 2020, you're making 40 grand, your tax rate would have been, right off the top of my head, I think it was around 12%. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they raised that uh, bracket to where now the maximum threshold for 12% was, uh, four, well, it would have been 4% higher. So let's just call it, it went from 40,000 up to, let's just say 42,000, mm -hmm. make it easy. So that's a 4% increase. But you see what happened is that person's income most likely went up by, let's say, 10%. Mm -hmm. because this inflation. So the they've gone from rate. making 40,000 to 44,000. So right. now all of a sudden they're in a higher tax bracket. That's right. We say, George, who cares? Because they're making more money. No, 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 no. Let's no. remember that their income went up by 10%, but compounded yeah. from 2020 to 2022, we've had as by the CPI, we've had a 15% increase. So they've not only lost purchasing power, even That's though they're, right. Nominal income went up. Now they've gone from a 12% tax bracket up to a, I think it was a 22% tax mm -hmm. bracket. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you want to talk about getting kicked in the nuts, right? Right. Your, 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 your purchasing power goes down relative to your income. And plus you're paying an additional 10% of your income to uncle Sam. Right. So that's another way that I think even outside of just price increases, how the government steals and robs yes. wealth away from the citizens because they don't increase the tax brackets in an honest way. Absolutely. And this, I think, mirrors um, what I've seen in property taxes for homes too, right? 
you're paying whatever it is, 3% property tax on your home, but you're also paying capital gains tax when you sell that house. Well, what's happening in an inflationary regime when you're printing money, surprise, surprise, housing prices tend to go up, right? So you're paying capital gains tax on notional increases in value. But it, so it's, a, it's another case of like putting on this veneer of you know, helping people, right? Because on the surface, it looks good that whatever they increased, I think you said the bracket 10%, 4%, whatever it was. But it's, yeah, my it's, memory serves away from 12 to 22, something like that. It's disguising the depreciation of purchasing power in the dollars, right? That's actually, so basically they've increased the effective tax rate on people, but they've disguised it as though um, they've given you kind of a tax break in a way. Yeah, I mean, your point's fantastic because yeah. think about that. You could have a million dollar property and let's say uh, inflation goes up by 20%. Mm -hmm. And and let's just say that your property goes up at the same rate, 10% right. or 20%, whatever. So now your property is valued at 1.2 million. Well, it doesn't have any more purchasing power. Right. The purchasing exactly. power is identical. But you but owe. If you went and sold the property. <laughs> but you owe. Yes. You owe tax on the 200 grand yes. or in plus probably your uh, property taxes. Exactly. Because of the tax assessment. That's it's, right. It's, it's, a, it's a total, total ripoff and just a scam when you think about it in those terms. And it's just another reason why that consumer price inflation is just so devastating. Right on uh, an economy and on a, a society. You know, another thing that I wrote down that we might want to talk about in a bit is I just got back from Turkey. Last time we spoke, I was in Portugal mm -hmm. and I went to Istanbul and I had a professional guide there and she was showing me all around the old town, which is fantastic. But one of the things I wanted to do is talk to as many people as I could to find out how they're navigating mm -hmm. the 80% per year inflation, mm -hmm. consumer price inflation that they've had in Turkey for the last, I don't know, three, four, five years. And what I found is the majority of people, what they do is they've basically taken the function of money itself and they've compartmentalized it into two different currencies. So you've got a, a store of value mm -hmm. and then you've got a medium of exchange and a unit of account. Checking and savings, right? Yeah. So the medium of exchange, the unit of account is the Turkish lira. Mm -hmm. But as soon, even weekly, if they have any left over after paying their expenses, they immediately turn the lira into one of three things, at least the maybe 10 people I talked to, is either dollars, euros, or gold. Hmm. That was it. Hmm. And, and so that's how they kind of broke it down to, okay, well, I've got this one currency that's a unit, uh, excuse me, a store of value. Mm -hmm. And then I've got this other currency, this is basically toilet paper, mm -hmm. where we don't even care how much it inflates because no one's saving that. And we're just using it as a, a medium of exchange and a unit of account. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, was very interesting. Yeah, very interesting indeed. I also saw a post by someone on Twitter. It was a receipt from a coffee house, I think in Turkey, and they had two lattes over the course of, you know, four or five hours and the latte was actually repriced. So the first latte <laughs> was X lira and second latte was X plus one. Yeah. Um, so 
And another just, thing I saw, Robert, is is a lot of people are just pricing things in dollars or euros. Right. Right. And just like it makes sense, right? It's yeah. makes all but the sense that, in the world. Another thing too, and are you if you're not ready to go into those numbers, or I'm ready whenever you are. Go ahead. Yeah, applicable to those numbers, I think is something we got to think through. Is we've got to look at this from the standpoint of a U.S. citizen, because their expenses are denominated in dollars. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, I think you we've got to look at it from a standpoint of a foreigner, where their expenses are denominated in yen or you know Colombian pesos, where I am now, or Turkish lira. So if we assume the United States is going to have a five percent. A CPI number, headline CPI, for the next 10 years. Therefore, the value of your dollar savings is going to go down by that. Well, you know, just based on headline CPI. Yeah. We, we can't assume that that's the same for someone in Japan. Because if they are earning dollars, let's say, mm -hmm. or if they have dollars in savings, but yet the, the Japanese yen is depreciating substantially against the dollar, and the inflation rate, like as an example, I think just right off the top of my head, the yen has gone down about 20, 30%, something like that against the dollar over I don't know, maybe the last year, year and a half. But their local inflation rate has only been, let's say, 3 or 4%. So if you stored your savings in dollars and you were a Japanese citizen, you'd be making out like a bandit. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you stored your savings in dollars and you were in the United States, you'd be getting absolutely crushed. Right. That's right. So it is a, a much different dynamic. So I think it's worth thinking about Americans, how that pertains yeah. to them, and then also foreigners and how it may pertain to them a little bit differently. Yeah. And what we're what we're stating here is that exorbitant privilege, right? That there's 330 million Americans, but there's four and a half billion users of dollars. Mm. So a lot of that purchasing power depreciation is being exported actually really only maybe like nine or ten percent of the purchasing power debasement if you're basing it on that number of people like i said earlier it's probably more likely based on the distribution of capital which i don't have knowledge on but suffice it to say a lot of that purchasing power debasement is being exported from the united states um but for purposes of this i'm going to try to view it from the American perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's very hard to quantify like how much you're being quote unquote taxed through inflation for the reasons we outlined earlier. Like it's impossible to have an inflation metric. It's much clearer to look at explicit taxation because that's, that's a bill, right? That's denominated in dollars. It's something you pay. And so, and what I'm trying, the reason I'm framing this is to illustrate the incentives faced by savers in fiat currency to adopt better forms of money. Just like the 10 people you said you talked to, right? They're using a harder store of value, right? Dollars or Euro or gold. And so if you just, and I'm looking at 2021 numbers and um, uh, I'll say this now, and then I'll, I'll go into the actual savings numbers. In 2021, the United States generated roughly $3.9 trillion in direct tax receipts. So that's collections, you know, explicit taxes paid. Yeah. 
There was also an expansion of USM2 uh, near the tune of $4.1 trillion. So uh, using 2021 as kind of our sample year, you would say that roughly 50% of US revenue was direct taxation and 50% of US tax revenue was indirect taxation via inflation. And so if I look at the average taxpayer, uh, average US citizen was paying $10,500 in direct taxes to the US government as of that year. Now, again, not that Bitcoin gives you this absolute savings that you like just by putting your money in Bitcoin, you can completely uh, shield yourself from direct taxation. That's not the case that I'm making, but I would argue that you could shield yourself from purchasing power debasement, right? Whatever, whatever that unquantifiable number is. But if we're using 2021 as our proxy, it's probably 50, 50, right? So if you're the average U S citizen, paying $10,500 $10, to the U.S. government in explicit direct taxes, we could use that proxy and say, you're probably also getting debased. Your purchasing power is also getting debased around $10,500. So it's it's a rough proxy, but again, you have to use a proxy here because inflation yeah. can't be cannot be quantified um, specifically. Yeah. I think what's important and what you're going to go over here, Robert, is, is not necessarily the exact numbers, but the concept. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's just, it's, it's pointing to the financial incentives people have to move from weaker forms of money to harder forms of money as a means of long-term savings. Mm-hmm. So if you take the 10,500 that a U.S. citizen is, uh, we've used our proxy to say the average U.S. citizen paying 10,500 in taxes in 2021 is probably also being deep, his purchasing power, his or her purchasing power is also probably being debased at $10,500. If you take that number and just stretch it out over a 40 year working life, right? Just your average guy working over 40 years. If you instead, you could use, you could look at that $10,500, that loss in purchasing power as a foregone savings, right? That's money that's being paid or wealth that's being redistributed to the US government that you could avoid by holding a harder money, in this case, Bitcoin or gold even. If you compound that annually and you say $10,500 every year for 40 years, and you assume you get a 5% return on your savings, which is a pretty conservative rate. A lot of people do a lot better than that. That equals $1.2 million at the end of 40 years. So this illustration, the point of this illustration is to just say that there are significant financial incentives for people to figure out where, what asset to store their long-term savings in um, and um, to do it, basically. So like, it, it, it becomes a question somewhat, somewhat like this. Would you change your long-term savings account for a balloon payment of $1.2 million at the end of 40 years, right? That's the calculus that kind of gets pressed upon people. And I'm not making the argument that people sit here and prepare the spreadsheets and figure it all out. Like a lot of this is a tacit learning, right? People feel the purchasing power, like prices are going up faster than their wages and they just figure out, oh, if I hold dollars instead of lira, I'm better off. But the compound effect of that 
again, using just these assumptions and these proxies over 40 years is a massive number, right? A $1.2 million amount for the average US taxpayer, the guy making 50K a year, paying Uncle Sam 10.5. That's a really huge financial incentive to move out of dollars of as long-term savings and into gold or Bitcoin. And now if you look at those numbers, just as, just one more example, I have the little spreadsheet here, but if you were instead saving $100,000 a year rather than 10.5, right? You're, you're slightly higher up the economic hierarchy and say you're getting a 10% return on that. When you compound that across 40 years, it's $44.2 million. Yeah, yeah. So the, like the incentives are enormous to push people out of weaker, softer forms of money into harder forms of money. And this is that, that calculus and game theory that I think actually drives people into Bitcoin and gold over time. I'm not anti-gold at all. I think if you're selling dollars to buy gold or Bitcoin, you're much better off. I just think Bitcoin's better than gold. So, Yeah, I think the problem, it's a great point, but I think the problem we have right now if we're focusing on United States, is the expression of those incentives. Because I think that if you would have laid out that argument to the average Joe or Jane, they would say, well, yeah, of course, Robert. That's why I've got all my money in a 401k, like Dave Ramsey told me to. And my financial planner has put me in a something called a, I don't know, Robert, I think it's called a 60-40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stock bond portfolio. And so, yes, of course, that, that's why I'm investing for the future. That's why I listen to all these millennial YouTubers <laughs> that uh, not, not, I've got nothing against them, but I'm just using them as an example, <laughs> you know. Uh, but that's why I listen to these guys and I listen to uh, Orman, Susie Orman, mm -hmm. and I listen mm -hmm. to Dave Ramsey. And that's why I'm being a, a good average Joe or a good average Jane. I'm planning for the future. And I'm taking every extra dollar I have and putting it into my Roth IRA, 401k, and I'm, I mean, I'm dollar cost averaging yeah. into my 60, 40 stock bond portfolio. I think that's, that's the hurdle we have as content creators. I agree with you that there is significant inertia from that herd mentality, and it's very likely to keep people doing that over time, right? Like I would say the 6040 is already dead, basically. But so there's probably still a lot of people who are gonna that are doing it and will continue doing it for years ahead. Yep. But in the long run, those that figure out this calculus first are gonna benefit disproportionately to those that figure it out later. So the there it doesn't uh invalidate the argument in my estimation that you still see wealth get pushed into harder forms of money over time, even if it takes, even if there's a significant lag uh, and inertia of the herd mentality. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I always try to sum all of this concept up as pain as information, right? Like you can keep doing the 60, 40 portfolio, run it for the rest of your life, but I guarantee you it's going to cause you a lot more pain over the next 30, 40 years than actually uh, evaluating sound stores of value you know, like gold or like Bitcoin um, in a, in a inflationary global regime that's trending towards hyperinflationary. Yeah. I think the question we would need to think through is why, what, what are the current 
cost benefits to Bitcoin as opposed to the 60-40, if we're just talking to the average Joe and Jane, or you know, what would be the benefits to uh, Bitcoin versus gold or Bitcoin versus silver, the dollar? I'm thinking back to the, the Turkey example. And if I'm someone in Turkey and I'm just, you know, like my tour guide, uh, she's a great gal, but she she's probably making the equivalent of maybe 50 grand a year mm-hmm. here, here in the, the United States. Uh, maybe maybe a little bit more, but she's probably got a little bit of extra money at the end of the month to put into savings. Her number one priority is just don't lose money. Right. Just, just don't lose money. I, I don't want to get rich. I just, with this savings, I just want it to be that, a, a savings of purchasing power. So I think what the hurdle would be for this gal, using her as an example, with Bitcoin would just be the current volatility. Yeah. Because if, if you're that gal, you see almost zero volatility with the United States dollar. So if if if, if your only goal is just to be as um what would the word be? Conservative. As, as careful, yes, yeah, conservative mm-hmm. as possible, she's gonna go into the dollar. So I think in order to prompt her to go into Bitcoin, because this is what we're really talking about. You know, what is the, the point where the masses start to see that as the optimal store of value? And I think that boils down to volatility. So then the next question becomes, how do how is the volatility going to be reduced? I think maybe the answer is adoption, but then how does the adoption increase if the volatility doesn't, it's kind of like a chicken and egg. Mm-hmm. And I know you've given that a ton of thought, so I'd love to hear your ideas on that. Well, I would just... I think that's the biggest kind of hurdle for uh, more adoption as far as a store of value for mm-hmm. Bitcoin right now. Yeah, so I think you've done a great job of highlighting kind of the pernicious trap that fiat currency gets people in, right? It those that are most dependent on the dollar or any fiat currency maintaining its purchasing power across time are those that are being victimized the most via debasement, right? It's, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck or you're living on a fixed income, you're a retiree, whatever it may be, you're the one being hurt the most by debasement. If you're rich and you own assets, well, you're actually benefiting at the expense of those lower down the economic hierarchy uh, because that debasement is actually um, increasing the nominal value, at least of your assets. So I don't, and again, it's not, Again, if we say the masses going into Bitcoin, again, I want to be careful here because I would argue that it's more about the majority of capital going into Bitcoin. It doesn't necessarily have to come from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's those individuals, right, that have, and you could probably use the Michael Saylor case study here, right? Like I've looked at all my options. I've got a positive cash flow business. I've got a lot of cash on the balance sheet. I don't know where else to put it. So I decided to take the technological risk of something like Bitcoin um, and use that as as a treasury reserve asset. I think it's more those types of decisions where large amounts of capital are being moved into 
what I would consider to be the superior store of value, but this could also be gold again, um, that that's what actually drives up Bitcoin or gold market capitalization, which is inverse to volatility, which over mm. time makes it more useful as a store of value for those lower down the economic hierarchy that are living more paycheck to paycheck. So um, that's how I, I think about it is that it's, it's, it's that process of evaluation and, and choosing the best asset um, for holding value over time. But it does tend to benefit those that have more of an appetite for volatility. I don't think the first, you know, the early adopters of Bitcoin are not going to be, well, now there's an extreme case to be said here though. If you're in Venezuela and the currency is just utterly destroyed, right. you might be a quick adopter of Bitcoin just to get the fuck out of the country or do anything, right? Just to survive. But at the other end of the spectrum, you do have the billionaires that are just saying, look, I'm in the capital. I'm not in the get rich business. I'm in the stay rich business. And so they're going to look to things like gold or Bitcoin in a very inflationary environment as a means of staying wealthy. Or, or even if it's not inflationary, just as a means to have some sort of purchasing power outside of the system that's very mobile. I mean, Resist, that's, yeah. Me and my personal life, I could care less if Bitcoin goes to a hundred or a million or uh, you know, I'd be very, very happy if it just maintained its purchasing power mm -hmm. and just, I'd, I'd continue to buy it just to have that, that, that percentage of my overall net worth completely out of the system. And in that mobility to where I could just throw up my back pocket. And, and to your point, I think people that are maybe higher up the economic totem pole, or as far as their net worth, oh. that is going to be increasingly attractive. Yes. And then you couple in what we were talking about earlier, where, so we know that debasing currency is widening that gap between rich and poor. So you're getting a lot more number of individuals lower down the economic hierarchy. Right. They're then going to express their frustration in the ballot box, right? Trying to vote themselves money. But when they try to vote themselves money, that necessitates wealth redistribution from those higher up the wealth hierarchy those that are high in the wealth hierarchy will say, well, what can I hold that can't be redistributed? <laughs> and, you know, I, I think the options are pretty slim, right? You can hold physical gold or you can hold physical Bitcoin. Um, so again, it's this game theoretic process of everyone trying to not be stolen from, whether it's by inflation or direct wealth redistribution that I think just pushes individuals into hard money assets at, at this particular epoch that we're in. I think that's the best argument I've heard for how we get from A to B as far as reducing vol on on Bitcoin and 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 getting it to where it, it's perceived just due to price action as, as something that is more similar to uh, gold or the dollar or silver or something like that is you you've got the the one percent of the one percent Mm -hmm. that get increasingly squeezed and feel more at risk that there's a bigger target on their back. And they say, Hey, I've got this 60, 40 portfolio, but I, that's all in the system. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm watching Robert's YouTube channel or George's YouTube channel or another content creator in the space. And I understand the value of having something outside the system. So I'm going to take a hundred million dollars of, of stock, let's say, mm -hmm. and I'm going to sell that 
And I'm going to take that and transfer it into Bitcoin and into gold. But I'm definitely going to have that Bitcoin because even if it does have vol, I'm, I'm happy to weather the storm in order to have the additional transferability, that's a word, or the additional mobility mm -hmm. that Bitcoin gives me versus gold. Yeah. And you could argue it's probably not either or, it's probably both, right? That individual is probably making an incremental decision. So it's not a huge chunk of their net worth. It's probably a small one initially that grows as things get more uncertain. It's probably going into both gold and Bitcoin. And you could say maybe it's it's sovereignty, right? It's so being able to own something that no one can take. Uh, I, I tweeted this the other day, like in, in a world where everyone's on the take, Bitcoin held in a multi-key wallet is the only thing that nobody can take. Um, you could put gold in there too. Again, I'm not like, if you're going to hold gold, I hope you're holding it. hope you're holding physical gold. I just don't think paper gold is going to do you a lot of good um, in this scenario that we're describing where, yeah. where wealth redistribution is increasing because there's a lot and of currently, problems. Currently, I think there, the, 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 the pros and cons, if we're to just look at Bitcoin and gold, just currently, and obviously this could change in the future, but the, the, the pro to gold is that you've got very low vol. Mm -hmm. That's right. Relatively speaking. The con with gold is it's tough to transport. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not going to take $100 million worth of gold on a plane. Well, maybe you are, but that, that's going to be dicey. It's got mass. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 that's right. That's going to be dicey. Where the pros and cons of Bitcoin are just the complete opposite. Exactly. The, the con is that you've got that vol, but the pro is that you've got ultimate flexibility and That's ultimate right. mobility. And so I think if we just take a snapshot in time as we speak today for that person that's got a very, very high net worth, it makes a heck of a lot of sense to have uh, to have both. Yeah. And, uh, and and just size it based on how you see those, those risks versus those rewards for each specific asset or store of value. Yeah. That was the, the very next thing I was going to say is that, as you know, right, vol is, there's no such thing as too volatile. It's all a matter of positioning. Like if it's too volatile, well then reduce your position, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like it, you, you should be looking at your entire portfolio's volatility, not any particular asset. I mean, by all means, look at the volatility of the asset, but then use that to decide what percentage of your portfolio that asset should be. So when people say things like it's too volatile, it's like, you're not thinking properly about portfolio construction. <laughs> like it's all about position sizing. Yeah. So gold presumably in this argument would be a much larger position in your portfolio. And I think that's, I don't disagree with that. And to each their own, you know, I am a slightly younger man that's been going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole for a long time. So I've got deep conviction in Bitcoin being superior to gold in the long run. So I'm actually weighted more heavily in Bitcoin than I am in gold, but that's unique to me. If I'm an older gentleman that's in the you know much you know, super high net worth category and I'm in the stay rich business, I'd probably be more heavily weighted to gold. So, yeah, I, I think that's just really the, the the best way to look at it. I mean, I on my channel I always talk about a ten eighty ten portfolio, like ten percent insurance for me. That's just gold, and then eighty percent hopefully investments that pay you to own them. Mm -hmm. and then 10% in speculative assets, which is not a derogatory term. 
mm-hmm. it just simply implies you're not being paid to own it. So there's mm-hmm. good asymmetry. And that's where I would put Bitcoin and that's where I would put gold miners and uranium and, and things like that. But I, I think to your point, though, as the world becomes more volatile and more tumultuous, and especially the path that the United States is heading right mm-hmm. now, I, I would actually be comfortable in my own personal portfolio, slightly increasing the allocation to gold. And then on the speculative side, increasing the allocation to Bitcoin, mm-hmm. just, just, just to have that because I'm, I'm more prioritizing based on the world around me, yeah. I'm more prioritizing a store of value and I'm more prioritizing the mobility that, uh, as far as your purchasing power and having something outside of the system that, that Bitcoin delivers. Yeah. And I, I would, um, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I'm assuming that 80% slice of your portfolio a lot of that's income generating real estate i would imagine it was yeah Yeah. i mean it's it's not as much anymore because i sold everything i owned in the united states back in i think the last property was 2018 2019 but what i try to do now is is find just dividend paying stocks in the commodity space right uh make up the 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 largest percentage of that 80 percent but you know now i'm kind of waiting for the prices to come to me and that's a Right. Oh, they're can of worms. Yeah. So I would argue that you could actually proxy that portion of your portfolio. Like if property taxes are being ratcheted up or if capital gains taxes are being ratcheted up on the dividend paying stocks or whatever, that would be a pretty telling signal that, okay, maybe I do want to own more things outside the system because the state is becoming more desperate, right? When they, when they increase tax rates. So, um, if they're increasing your property tax on your real estate or capital gain or whatever the applicable tax is, if it's increasing on that 80% slice, I would interpret that as a signal to beef up my 10% allocations on in, the, in both the speculative and the, the, the gold mining gold uh, portion that you said, I forgot what you called it. Yeah. The, the speculative side. Yeah. It's there. You're to a certain degree, it's different, but to a certain degree, you're going to run into the same problem if you ever sell your gold or Bitcoin. That's because thing. even well, if that yeah. Bitcoin or gold goes up in, in nominal terms, let's just say that your Bitcoin just stays consistent with the rate of inflation, or this is a lot of times the gold bugs don't kind of goes over their head too sometimes. <laughs> that uh, let's just say that gold went to 5,000 an ounce. Okay, fantastic. But if it just kept pace with the rate of inflation, and you bought that gold at a thousand dollars an ounce. Now, all of a sudden, you're taking a twenty percent tax hit on the delta between a thousand and five thousand. Right. But yet, your purchasing power didn't increase at all. Right. Therefore, Which, you have less yeah. purchasing power for holding that quote unquote store of value. So the the increase in Bitcoin or, or whatever store of value you want to choose, the unless it's currency, you know, unless it's it's the dollar, and you're that Turkish right. gal. And that's the uh, advantage of currency is you're not going to get hit with that tax bill. There you go. There yeah. you go. So uh, that, that, and that's something to think about as well yeah. I think for the, the listeners and the viewers, but just using that comparison, unless that store of value exceeds the rate of inflation, mm-hmm. when you pay the taxes, if you're an American citizen, it, it might not be as much of a store of value as you think. That's right. Yeah. It really all boils down to time horizon, you know? And yeah, I, yeah. So 
the Bitcoin and gold that I accumulate, I intend to never sell. It's just meant to be same forever here. savings. Yeah. Um, and dollars I hold for short-term liquidity. And that's that. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. That's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Element. Element is a delicious electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. Element contains the ideal electrolyte ratio. It's got 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element has no junk. It's got no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS at all. Element is perfectly suited for people that are on a keto, low carb, or paleo diet. And as someone that eats a very heavy meat diet and does a lot of intermittent fasting, I simply love this stuff. So go to drinkelement.com slash breedlove. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash breedlove and make sure to get a free sample pack with your first purchase. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. 
Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. I think an interesting path to, to go down here might be the central bank digital currency. Mm-hmm. I think that dovetails nicely on what we've been saying from the standpoint of we're talking about how to protect yourself and yeah. how to protect your purchasing power and the implementation of a central bank digital currency may most likely will give most uh, individuals in society another curveball to to contemplate. And I don't think, at least in my community, the people I talk to and I see in the comments and on Twitter and whatnot, I don't think they've given this enough thought. And they definitely haven't planned far enough ahead or, or planned well enough, in my opinion, mm-hmm. for a central bank digital currency assuming we get one. And I think the probability there is, is real darn high. I agree completely, almost inevitable, I would say. Um, and maybe a good segue here is just to tie this back to our earlier, how we started this conversation, right? Voting with your wallet versus voting via ballot. And um, if you understand that, like if you accept that, argument that money is kind of a a grassroots democratic voting system for what gets produced in the world. I think that's a really good framing for understanding why fiat currency is effectively voter fraud, right? You have one organization, central bank insiders effectively that can produce new votes for themselves. So you can actually via the legal monopoly, central banking can produce new units of fiat currency and then expend those into the marketplace to acquire things for themselves and externalize the cost of that acquisition onto people via inflation. So it, you end up with you know, bankers, politicians, other political insiders to the central bank having a lot more of these votes than they otherwise would in a free society that ran on a gold or a Bitcoin standard, for instance. And yeah, so you're um, talking about the current system or under a central bank digital currency? I'm talking about under fiat currency in general, but we could now take that a step further into a central bank digital currency, which I just view as fiat currency on steroids. It's the same thing, just with more surveillance, tighter controls, less intermediaries. Uh, it kind of cuts out the, the commercial banking sector, which uh, gives people a lot of, you know, for all of its flaws it gives individuals a lot more optionality and autonomy relative to a purely centralized uh, digital bank, uh, digital currency system like a CBDC. Yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance in a central bank digital currency that's worth discussing that I don't think a lot of people have allocated mental bandwidth to. Uh, going back to your original description of a fiat currency, I, I that's where I push back a little is I don't know that the central bankers really have complete control over the currency units or the amount of currency units in the real economy. Uh, they I, I don't I don't disagree business. with that, by the way. I don't. Yeah, and we, I think, we, we had that out last time. I'm just saying that 
the Cantillon effect where wealth is being yeah, redistributed, yeah, yeah, yeah. that is a form of voter fraud. That would be my point. Not to say that they can completely control the supply or anything. Yeah, um, I would say that the 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 Cantillon effect is really expressed through the especially the additional government spending. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, George, that's monetized by the Fed, but that's assuming that the market won't absorb those treasuries. And I think they might. And especially when you look at the QE kind of an, an inverse relationship with its intended effect on the long end of the curve, uh, which we discussed last time. But uh, that that's the main um, uh, cardinal sin, if you will, uh, from the standpoint of the Cantillon effect is, is whoever is closest to the money spigot with the the government spending, you know, those are the ones that are really going to benefit regardless of what the Fed is doing. And I would say that the psychological impact from the Fed having this implied put mm-hmm. or or bailout yep. the system could uh, uh, incentivize the banksters to expand their balance sheet not for the real economy but for the financial economy. Okay. So the, those insiders will receive uh, an additional benefit that they otherwise wouldn't. And I yes. would put that in the category of the Cantillon effect as well. So I think psychologically the Fed would impact that phenomenon, but I don't mm. think mechanically they would. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's it's this whole idea of disconnecting risk and reward, right? Where commercial bankers or central bank, whatever political insider, whatever level you're looking at, they can take risk that they don't have to bear the consequences for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, heads I win tells you lose, right? They get the rewards. Yep. If it goes belly up, well, you just print more money and externalize that onto the public. That's like the core. And this is, this is like the Talebian concept of skin in the game. Like the, in my estimation, the core problem with a legal monopoly, like a central bank is that we have severed skin in the game such that people making decisions are not, bearing the consequences of those decisions yeah you've eliminated free market capitalism yes and jupiter's creative destruction exactly absolutely absolutely i think that that's the big uh that's one of my biggest beefs with the federal reserve is it's 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 not so much them impacting or constraining or adding balance sheet capacity to the banking system or even impact over time uh, short Mm -hmm. spurts they can but over time impacting m2 it's it's really that manipulation of the front end of the curve, meaning that mm-hmm. the, the price of money at the front end, and that this implied bailout that just adds this massive moral hazard. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. And I think CBDCs exacerbate that. Yeah, what I want to try to communicate to your your viewers and, and listeners is that a central bank digital currency actually is not money. It's it's not a competing form of currency. I, I really don't like that term, central bank digital currency. And this is kind of a new idea for me after doing a couple whiteboard videos on it. Because before, I was also in the camp where I was calling it programmable money. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that's accurate. And I think there, in this case, there's definitely a reason to get into the nuance because it does make a substantial difference. So... I think a better way to say central bank digital currency would be a central bank ledger system mm-hmm. and software. So right now, I think of the banks as just scorekeepers. 
mm-hmm. really all they do. And, and so, you know, if they're just, they're all they're doing is keeping score on the asset side of their balance sheet and just keeping score on the liability side. And they can easily manipulate those just like a scorekeeper at an NBA game can change the score from 105 to 106. Right. It's, it's literally that easy. And so whether they're keeping score with something called a dollar or a Fed coin, I, I think there's almost a 100% certainty that it's not going to be a dollar and a Fed coin where the, they come in and say, hey, we're introducing this brand new currency. It's going to be great. You're going to get UBI. It's just going to be a dollar. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a dollar. Mm. So I don't think there's going to be any difference in the way the ledgers keep score. I think the difference is going to be the consolidation of the current ledger network onto the Fed's ledger or their balance sheet, if you want to call it that. And I think that the ledger system that exists with the commercial banks right now, as far as the financial economy, will most likely stay the same. So the hedge funds, the pension funds, the financial institutions, I think their dollars will continue to be a liability of the commercial banking system because the commercial banking system still needs to have that uh, elasticity, for lack of a better word, Mm. to go into repo and the euro dollar. And I think the Fed's smart enough to know that if they interrupted that, you're basically taking the world into a Mad Max type of scenario that I don't even think they want. So what you're doing is you're taking that the ledger that was the, the retail ledger for the re, for the real economy, you're taking that from the commercial banking system and moving it onto the Fed's ledger. So then all of those transactions circulate mm-hmm. through the Fed. And what I'd like your viewers to kind of think about is just whether they bank with Wells Fargo or Chase or whatever, B of A, you go down to Chipotle this afternoon to get lunch, you run your debit card. And then when you go back home, let's say you bank with Wells Fargo, you see your account online, you see the transaction. Chipotle on the debit side, $20. So what's happening is there's communication between Chipotle and your bank. And that happens with all transactions. But what's different is that is decentralized to a certain extent, and they're Mm -hmm. only seeing the vendor and the amount of the transaction. (laughs) They're not seeing the detail of the transaction. So let's just assume for a moment that that we that a central bank digital currency was a different form of programmable money. How would that programmable money actually know that you not only ordered Chipotle, but you ordered a burrito and you had beef or chicken or vegetarian or tofu? You're you're being a, a good little World Economic Forum boy. <laughs> how, how would they, they, the answer is they wouldn't unless something changed on the side of the vendor that would allow that transaction to transmit more data. So this is why, number one, I don't think it's a different currency. I think it's the exact same thing. But the difference is those ledgers are moved to the Fed's balance sheet, which would give them the opportunity to UBI and all these things that we talk about, these Orwellian things, as well Mm -hmm. as manage credit, because they get extend credit based on narrative and not Mm -hmm. merit. Why? Because the Fed has an infinite balance sheet. Yeah, They they can be insolvent. They don't worry about a P&L or the commercial banking system has to worry about that stuff. 
So, so in other words, like Dr. Lacey Hunt says, that those bank reserves would now effectively become legal tender. Right. So I think what's going to have to happen, and this is the key distinction here, is it's not just the Fed rolling out some programmable money. In addition to that, I think they're going to have to implement a point of sale type of inclusion into this new network. Mm-hmm. So as an example, Chipotle, in order to get their business license, has to uh, plug in to this Fed network, let's say. So then you go down to Chipotle because a, a, a common theme I hear is, well, I'll just unplug from the system by using cash. And that's mm-hmm. one thing that you know I was saying a lot before I really thought it through. Or I, you know, I'll just unplug, but maybe we can have a, a group of people that use Bitcoin or silver, gold, something like that. So they won't even know about the transaction. But I think what's going to happen, Robert, is you're going to go into Chipotle and before you even order, they're going to make you put your fingerprint right down on there, or they're going to use facial recognition. So then regardless of whether you pay with uh, cash, Bitcoin, gold, silver, whatever it is, that transaction is going to be recorded. And since it's plugged into that network, the central planners are going to get all the breakdown of the data they actually need to micromanage your life, which instead of just the vendor and the and the dollar amount, they're going to get the vendor, the dollar amount. If you got tofu, if you got beef, if you got chicken, whatever it is you bought, they're going to have that detailed breakdown. So I think when you go to your Fed account, or your, your bank account that's just the liability of the Fed on their ledger, in the future, I think a lot of people are going to say, oh, wow, this is great, because now I can go onto my bank statement or my online bank account, and it not only shows the vendor, but wow, Robert, it shows exactly what I ordered. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And so I, I want to encourage your viewers to think about a central bank digital currency, not just from a standpoint of money, I don't think that's what matters because we're going to uh, use the same money. But it's it's the difference in a ledger network and combining that with this software that at point of sale, at point uh-huh. of sale, that requires you to have the fingerprint or the facial recognition. Just like right now, the gym I go to or the gyms I've seen, you know, some of them you have to put your fingerprint uh-huh. before you go in. Uh-huh. And then that's how they're determining who it is. And if you've paid your membership and then you can go in, I think they'll move to something like that uh, with pretty much every business within that network. And I think the carrot in front of the horse is going to be, well, you do this or you don't get your business license. Very right. similar to, you know, how how businesses are required to maybe uh, collect sales tax or something right. like, like that in today's world. So I think that's a very important distinction that we as liberty-minded people need to think about that that care about freedom and and privacy and want to uh, unplug from that Orwellian future. We need to think about it in those terms because that's going to be, I think, a much different game plan Mm -hmm. to unplug from the system than if it's just simply programmable money. And the suggestions that I have given uh, on the whiteboard video I did is I really think it would be beneficial for people to right now, as we speak, start creating a community of like-minded people 
that you can barter with, whether that's online or better in real life, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying barter, you know, I'll trade my milk for your wool or something like that. What I'm saying is barter their climate or their carbon footprint allocations hmm. and start thinking about how you can do that now. So let's say, Robert, you and I are our buddies, like-minded individuals, and we say, you know what? I think there's a good idea to be a part of this community right now. Let's say that's with a lot of the people that we know in the space. And let's say that you have a diesel truck and you're a vegetarian but I like beef and I have a gas car. So you know darn well that they're that they're gonna try to limit the amount of beef you eat and the mm -hmm. amount of diesel you use. So I know that every single month I'm gonna hit my limit on beef and you're most likely gonna hit your limit on diesel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we say, okay, well, I'll go ahead and legally within the system, I will buy diesel fuel and give it to you and you can just buy the beef and give it to me. Right. And then we can just kind of go back and forth. I think that's one thing that you can do. But again, I would suggest planning right now because I think if most people, they just kind of complain about it and they bitch about it. And then it just kind of sneaks up on them. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they wake up one morning and they're caught up in that network and they haven't done any preparation. Yeah. That's how we ended up with the income tax and passports yeah. and all this other yeah. shit we have today. Right. Yeah. yeah. Death, death yeah. by a thousand paper cuts, I guess. Um, no, that's, I think that's interesting. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I hadn't heard that angle before. Um, so that we're, you're talking about basically the centralization. basically we have a lot of disparate ledgers right now, but this would be kind of a, a centralization of all these ledgers such that the administrator of the CBDC has kind of a universal visibility, right? Yeah. Yeah. The fed, the treasury, whatever yeah. central planner, just plug it in. And, and I think, you know, how they implement this, Robert is it, this is kind of my base case and this might be a little outside the box, but this is kind of, if, if I had to put on my evil genius hat, mm -hmm. this is probably how I'd do it. We all know that they, they could, likely incentivize people by saying, Hey, here's your UBI. That was my so next go ahead question. And download yep. your, your fed app. And now all of a sudden your, your, your dollar assets that are liabilities of Wells Fargo become liabilities of the fed. That's mm -hmm. pretty much what we were talking about. Yep. And then maybe they'll give you a higher interest rate because mm -hmm. who cares? That's They've got an interest balance sheet. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but in addition to that, I think that when we have the next crisis, whatever black swan event that is, I think, if we look back to COVID, we remember that the Fed was really pushing on a string until the fiscal side of the equation came in and kind of saved the day. You know, they dropped rates down to zero. They did. They announced QE infinity, a trillion dollars a day in repo they were going to commit to. And the market the very next day still went down by like 1,500 points. And then it continued to go down until the fiscal, the government came out and said, okay, now we're going to do the CARES Act. And that's actually what made the U-turn the, the mm -hmm. in the stock market, if you want to use that as a proxy. So I think the next go around, the Fed might have to think through a different form of quantitative easing that would play right into this central bank ledger software right. system. And that's instead of doing QE on the asset side of their balance sheet, 
They do QE on the liability side. So you can think about a bank run where everyone's panicked and they're worried and they're taking their money out, you know, and this is causing uh, a lot of cracks in the commercial banking system. But you could imagine the Fed coming in and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, we, we need to organize things. And if we just do QE and buy treasuries or mortgage-backed securities, that's not going to do it because the the people, the, the, the problem is confidence in the system. Uh-huh. It's not the fact that housing prices are going down, using the GFC as an example. So what we'll do is instead of buying those mortgage-backed securities from the bank, the asset side of their balance sheet, we'll just go ahead and take the deposit liabilities from the bank onto our balance sheet. All right. So now average Joe, Jane, you don't have to worry about anything because the central bank cannot go bust. So now we don't even need FDIC. Right. Why do we, who cares? So now you can have a, a billion dollars in your Fed account and you don't have to worry about insurance at all because the central bank can't go bust. So we have this big panic, we have this big crisis and again, they they resolve that, which fits pers- perfectly into the CBDC plan, where they 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 do QE on the liability side of their balance sheet, and not the asset side. What do you think about that? I you took the words right out of my mouth. I was like, surely they're going to incentivize this with some kind of yield and or UBI, some combination. Um, I would also say this is all prerequisite to some kind of social credit system. Obviously, like. Once you have that much surveillance and centralized control, it's not going to be long before that tofu burrito is going to be giving you some kind of extra points or maybe a discount on tofu versus beef, or maybe you get a carbon penalty for eating beef. I don't know. Exactly. Um, But see, I think that's why they're going to need the fingerprint because I've really tried to think through without the fingerprint or without changing something on the vendor side of the trend, how do they get that data? Right. Like how do they know what you ordered at Cheesecake Factory if Cheesecake Factory isn't somehow communicating that to the centralized ledger? Right. Well, this I would mean, be... again, you can, ima- you, you can imagine if, if you, Chipotle didn't talk to your bank, well, then how would your bank know that, that that $20 transaction that debited your account was from Chipotle if Chipotle didn't tell them? There, there has to be a communication mechanism. And that's why I think that point of sale software needs to to change. And that's really the big difference along with the ledger with a quote unquote CBDC. So I've got a lot of questions about this. So what it could also be, they could incentivize you to use a CBDC wallet for those transactions. Maybe you get a discount by paying through the you know CBDC app or something to that effect. And then attaching yes, that to like I just, I just digital passport and all of that. Do you think they yeah, do that? See, that's still, unless the point of sale changes from where it is right now, that's still just going to give them the, the same info that Wells Fargo has, which okay. is vendor and uh, the, the debit to your account. Right. Like, you know, it's not going to give you, if you go to Cheesecake Factory, it, it's not going to give the central planners the information as to whether you ordered spring rolls right. or a, a filet mignon or a salad. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's really scary. Cause that sounds almost like mark of the beast type territory where either you get the chip or you get the biometrics or something. Right. And then you get a centralized ledger of all that data. That's just very nightmarish. 
Um, okay. Another question. What do you anticipate or how much resistance would you anticipate there being from the commercial banking system to this centralization? Cause this is going to eviscerate the business of a, a lot of commercial banks. No, no, I think they're going to love it. And so why, why? Because I think it's their retail lending profit is going to be identical to how it is right now, or, or the system of them making money is going to be identical to what they do with mortgages and Fannie and Freddie. So they're still going to instigate uh, the loan itself. So, you, you know, if you want a mortgage you're, or uh, an auto loan or something like that, you, although that asset eventually will live on the Fed's balance sheet, you're probably not going to go to Jerome Powell. What's going to happen is you go to your local bank and you say, Hey, I want an auto loan. Mm -hmm. And they say, okay, great. And their underwriting is basically what the, the checklist that they've received <laughs> from the federal reserve, just like now they're underwriting for a mortgage with most of the big banks is just a checklist they get from Fannie and Freddie. So you're going to get a massive credit expansion on the back of this because they're not taking the risk. And it'll be a credit. Yeah. Because the bank, what do they care? They're just like right. a, a mortgage. They're unloading that thing before the ink's dry. Right. So before the ink's dry right now, they're selling it to Fannie and Freddie, but now what they would do is they would just take that and then they would, the, the, the fed would increase the dollar amount in the borrower's account that they have at the fed. And then the bank would go ahead and just give them the loan. And then that would be the offsetting asset for that additional liability on the Fed's balance sheet. So the Fed would own all the mortgages. The Fed would own all the credit card debt. The Fed would own all of the auto loans, all the SBA, all the business loans, right, all right. that. But but the um, initial transaction would be done by the local bank, and then they would pocket a commission. Right. So there's zero risk, but they still make the same amount of money. Uh, just like they have right now with the, uh, or just like the uh, relationship they have right now with Fannie and Freddie. That's kind of how I see the most likely scenario. And I think banks would be all about it because. So, okay. That makes sense. I'll give you that. That does make sense. But there would, okay. So explosion in credit expansion, obviously, because. And it's not just an explosion of credit expansion. I think it would be an explosion of unproductive. 100% because I think obviously the, the, this, you don't have that banker relationship right. knowing not that we have it much now, but you know, in the past when that banker knew the individuals within the community, yeah. they say, Hey, I trust this guy. I know he's going to yeah. do a great job yeah. with this business loan, but that, and again, but that system is going to be based or was based on merit yes. See, in the future. I think that, that lending, um, that those check boxes, won't have anything to do with merit or your credit score no. or your ability to pay the loan back. Just check it'll the box. Be, well, no, I think it'll be based on political narrative. Oh, uh, okay. So Robert, you're, you're a, you know, straight white guy. Oh, so, so I get the high yeah, rate. <laughs> nah, nah, I don't think so. But okay. you've got someone that let's say you go into the bank and you now identify as, as a, a, a chick or you, you, you identified yeah. as, as some, uh, <laughs> you know, minority class or, you know, some class that is in favor right now with the government. And then they say, oh, well, yeah, well, in that case, for sure. 
because we want to direct far more lending oh to gosh. this disadvantaged group, right? right? And and since we have an infinite balance sheet, why not? I mean, this is straight MMT. Right. The the the, the, the government is the currency issuer, not the currency user. So why can't we just use that power of the Fed's balance sheet to implement social change? Right. Yes. And you know as well as I do that that is going to misallocate resources to an infinite degree, and 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 that's when you're going to get some massive economic distortions. One hundred. So it's another deprecation to skin in the game, as we described earlier. Uh, further rewarding of non-productivity, right? You're just going to get these auto loans or whatever it is because of political narrative, as you've described. I had imagined that delinquent and default rates would also explode. Like, like we saw running in the run up to the GFC, right? Where it was just, you know, they're, they were selling these things they're securitizing and selling these things so fast that it didn't matter. So there were a lot of bad loan, a lot of bad loans will be made in this model. I, I think so. Yeah. And I don't know what people's incentive is going to be to, to pay, pay back. them back. And, right. and I don't know what incentive there would be to collect. Because again, if you have an infinite balance sheet, what who, who even cares if you get paid back? Oh my God. Okay. And if you don't get paid back, by the way, let's think about that. Then, then oh. that additional M2 is going to stay additional M2 because you know that right now the banking system, yes. when they create a loan, that's additional money. Right. Then when that loan gets paid off, then you decrease right. by the amount of, of, of the principal payment. So then you're always kind of netting things out right. as to whether or not you're getting a net increase or a net decrease. But right now, or in the future, let's say, if the default rate or the delinquency rate default rate just skyrockets, well, now all of a sudden the principal isn't being paid back. Right. So you're not decreasing the money supply to offset the increase right. of money supply right. by new loans going right. into the system. And right. that's when you right. get some serious uh, currency units chasing goods and services. So massively and the productivity goes down. So right. We'll be producing fewer goods and services. That means the the ratio right. between even higher units and, and uh, goods and services actually becomes more extreme. Massively inflationary, massively and permanently inflationary. And also bank reserves would then effectively be legal tender, which is what Lacey yeah. Hunt said was hyperinflation of US dollars stage stage one. Yeah, and and Bitcoiners should should really be able to understand this concept because that not that they're not following the conversation, but but you know one of the the, the main components there, if Bitcoin is money, is that there's really no distinction between base and broad. Yeah, and it's right. all one and the same. Yeah, and this yeah. is a world from from the standpoint of just retail and the real economy, because again, I think the financial economy will go on working similar, almost identical to the way it currently is set up, mm -hmm. but just looking at the 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 real economy. I think that, that that's effectively what it becomes is base money right. becomes indistinguishable from, from broad money. It's basically one and the same. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think all of this bodes extremely well for hard money assets again, right? You've got massive and accelerating credit expansion. You've got bank reserves or legal tender. Um, every every market actor is just going to have an incentive to move purchasing power into something that can't be debased in this system. 
Yeah, I just think they're going to really clamp down on that network once right. it becomes integrated. You know, one right. of the the arguments I hear for uh, Bitcoin often when when people say, "Oh, well, you can't there just be a competitor for Bitcoin." What happens if there's a Bitcoin 2.0 that is just superior? And the argument usually is, "Well, that's not likely because the the Bitcoin network is already so strong." Mm. But we have to realize that there is nothing in human history that's been stronger than the dollar network mm -hmm. that we have right now. I mean, that that's... Yeah, but this who, is... even knows the power. So what I'm saying is just think about what happens when this new ledger system becomes integrated to the point where you have those similar type of network effects uh, that I think will gain traction very, very quickly because they'll be giving you know, that 51% uh, of those people, you know, UBI and higher interest rates and all these things that, you know, as a woke society, we see as socially desirable, let's well, say. But I just see producers not being rewarded inside of that system. So over time, they're going to migrate into the system where they're going to be rewarded, which is exactly. anywhere but and there. That, and that's why... Again, I really encourage people to start planning for this right now because it's not as simple as, oh, I'll just uh, give Chipotle cash and then who cares? Right. right. No, 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 no. If you want to unplug from this network, you're going to have to go somewhere else. Yeah. Like maybe not the beginning, but as, as time goes on, you're going to have to say, okay, you know, where can I go where I, I'm not being forced into this? network with every single transaction via my fingerprint or something like that to where they can trace everything other than me just you know growing my own food which would most likely be illegal or me just you know trading what i have with with, with some of my buddies and uh i think what's very important is not only people plan for this now but they have a distinct line in the sand that is premeditated and they communicate this with their entire family and say, if this line, if the government crosses this line, then we pull the trigger on our exit strategy. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's important because if people don't have that line in the sand, then it'll it, it just the way we are, we become more reactionary and the decisions that we make are more emotional. And then we'll continue to make excuses as to why we should continue to be that frog in the pot that's being boiled slowly. You know, one example I can give you from my personal life is back in 2020, when we were going through that madness with, with the lockdowns, I, I had this conversation with myself. And I said, George, you need to set up a line in the sand. So, so you're, you're not making an emotional decision, but mm -hmm. it's something that's premeditated. And once the government goes over that line, then you've got an action plan that you can go ahead and execute and your whole family's on board. And for me, Robert, the line in the sand was the mandates. Mm. The, the magic the, juice the mandates. Yeah. You got it. You got yeah. it. Yeah. That was my line in the sand. I'm like, okay, you know, my specific plan that I had, uh, we don't need to go over that here, but that was initiated. Yeah. As soon as I saw them come out with those mandates, I'm like, okay, that's it. Boom. Let's go ahead and 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 take the next step.
right? Hmm. Now we go ahead and take action. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important for your audience to have that conversation right now with themselves and, and their family. It's brilliant advice. I mean, unfortunately, this is very real. Um, and I think you've done a great job, I think, illustrating a div- a lot of what I try to explore on this show is how the corruption of money, central banking in general, fiat currency in general, leads to the corruption of everything money touches. And I think you've done a great job of kind of highlighting a, a potential end game for that, right? To the point where if this CBDC becomes as entrenched in the way you've described, like you're literally talking about incentivizing potentially gender reassignment surgery to go and get a cheap loan for an automobile, something like that. Right. right? So it's like a a cultural corruption as a result of this embedded financial corruption. Yeah. And And you uh, think about who's okay. So then the politicians are going to be creating that narrative, right. And that's going to be largely driven by the media because that influences voters. mm -hmm. And you say, okay, who are the puppeteers? with the politicians. And then you start, you got to start looking at the global elite. You got to start looking at the world economic forum and all those people Mm -hmm. that in my opinion are, are the ones that are actually pulling the strings and the politicians for the most part are just kind of the useful idiots. Yeah. And then you have to look at their objectives, Robert. Right. And we know that their objectives, they have two main objectives, decrease energy use and decrease the population. Right. So if you get control over society, you already control the media, you already control the politicians to a large degree. So if you get control over society in the ways we're referring to, how do you leverage that to reduce the population? And how do you leverage that to reduce energy use? And one of the things is the carbon footprint, but okay, how do they reduce the population? And that's by incentivizing people to have fewer kids. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. If more people are transitioning to the opposite mm-hmm. sex, mm-hmm. does that increase the birth rate or decrease the birth rate? Right. Then you go down that rabbit hole. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, so a, a fundamental takeaway from this for me, at least is just that I'd like to echo for the audience is like, this level of social engineering is only possible with this very sophisticated form of financial engineering we are describing, like you can't accomplish one without the other. And so any incremental step we take along that path towards the CBDC um, outcome, I think that is, that should be a signal to you that you're getting closer to that line in the sand, wherever you try to, wherever you choose to draw it for yourself. But if yeah, if you're actually concerned about not living in that world, you probably really do need to draw that line in the sand. Otherwise, um, have a plan and and communicate yeah. that plan because in reality, Robert, you and I are incredibly unique, and and especially me because I don't have any kids, I don't have a wife. I mm-hmm. I could literally pack up tomorrow and just be gone for the next year and live in St. Right. Bart's or something like that. Right. I understand most people aren't in that situation even you know the the sound money the libertarians the the freedom fighters the patriots the gold bugs the bitcoiners and whatnot most people they have a family mm-hmm. <laughs> they have kids yeah. and a mortgage they their grandparents. Yeah. they got a mortgage yeah. they got a yeah. job they've got their wife they've got their husband mm-hmm. so that's adds more complexity mm-hmm. i think what 
the 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 good news is you've got time not mm-hmm. a lot but you've got time to start having these discussions and start figuring out you know what is your current situation what are your values what are your priorities because that's going to determine that line in the sand as well. Let's say that yeah. you've got your kids right now in a private school and you absolutely love the education they're getting. And it and and you would do anything for them to continue in this school. Okay. Well, that's going to make your line in the sand probably a lot further out, oops, excuse me, than someone that doesn't have kids. Right. And so obviously this needs to be a tailor-made solution. And then you've got to communicate with your significant other and, yeah. and see if they're on board. Where's their line in the sand? You see that there's a lot of, of planning that, that needs to be done. And, and yeah. then, but I think that so many people uh, procrastinate mm-hmm. doing that because they just don't like thinking about it. They only right. like going on Twitter and bitching about it. Right, right, right. And, and uh, that's my main message is, is stop bitching and start planning. Amen to that. I think, um, I want to say this is Machiavelli he says one of man's greatest weaknesses is his refusal to prepare for the tempest tempest when the, the skies are calm, something like that. Like when things are calm and normal, like it's easy to just be complacent and not worry about it. But you got to pay attention to these signs and the, the direction we're headed in. And I got to be honest with you, George, as we're talking about this, like maybe this is just the Tennessean in me, but I feel this like kind of angry patriotism rising up inside of me that I even have to contemplate leaving my country because of this cultural malaise or whatever this, this uh, social engineering that's being imposed upon us. What can we do? Obviously, we need to have the line in the sand. We need to have the exit strategy. But what can we do to maybe press back against ever having to cross that line in the sand? Like, what can we do here on our home soil to just take a stand and give a nice, hearty fuck you to all these people that want to destroy the traditional values on which this country was built? Well, that's the good news is at the end of the day, the people have the power. And I don't know if we discussed it on our last podcast, but the example I always use is Romania in the fall of the Soviet Union when they came together and uh, they ousted the dictator within like nine days. And he'd been in power for like decades. Hmm. And I, I think we did discuss that. But if, if you think about even the lockdowns and if, if people would have just stood up and said no, even if they didn't have guns, there's nothing the government could have done. Absolutely mm-hmm. nothing. And so I I think it's about, and you know, this does go back to our first conversation because my message was let's not get lazy from the standpoint of just resting on the fact that sound money is going to be our savior Mm -hmm. because it's not, in my opinion, it's not, it's only giving us a tool. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is realize that it is our duty to go out if this, if we want a better world for our kids it's our duty to go out there and not just preach hey you should have sound money or hey you should have some gold or you should have bitcoin but we need to persuade our fellow americans that this is the downside to larger government mm-hmm. and this is the direction we're going 
So if we don't come together and if we don't push back through voting or even voting with our feet, because like you said, I think that sounds that sends a big signal to these politicians. Mm-hmm. If everyone's leaving New York and California, right, and and they get into financial difficulties as a result, and now all of a sudden Texas and Florida are booming, then the, the politicians are going to take note of that, right. And I think a lot of people would default to well, oh, there's just no hope. There's no hope. But I disagree with that. I, I think that in the past it was far more difficult to organize as a group of kind of freedom loving individuals, Hmm. but now with the internet and now with content creators like yourself, I I think it's, it's far more easy and more realistic to go ahead and push back. And then the probabilities of that working is, is going to be greater. I mean, look at the truckers, for example. Yeah. I mean, look at that. And, and people forget the truckers that was becoming a global phenomenon. Yeah. Not just in Canada. And I think that's another kind of rabbit hole, but it just so happened that Trudeau, I think was on his way out. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you get a war in Ukraine where Mm -hmm. everyone completely forgets about the trucker movement in Canada, the trucker movement in the United States, the trucker movement in Europe, the trucker movement in Australia, the trucker movement in New Zealand, which was, which was in the works. And all of a sudden their attention goes to, evil Putin mm-hmm. and Ukraine. And then all the heat comes off of Trudeau. Right. But my right. point is look at how much of an impact. And I, and I sincerely believe that if we would not have had the invasion of Ukraine, that trucker movement would have gone global and yeah. it would have really, really moved the needle closer towards freedom and right. much, much further away from totalitarianism. So that's a fantastic example of what we can do right now, but it's, it's just about creating urgency. And I think that's my, my biggest message is persuade people to not only talk about sound money, but talk, talk to people with a sense of urgency Mm -hmm. about coming together and pushing back to limit this, whatever size of government or this push towards authoritarianism and a a, a, a a form of tyranny yeah. in the form of this network that we're talking about, which most people refer to as a, a central bank digital currency. Yeah. I think that if they start to ban cash, which they most likely will, although I don't know that that would really be, you know, again, I don't think that gives you a release valve because of what we talked about earlier, but I do think it's it's worth really standing up and saying no that as, yeah. as voters that's a right. line in the sand that we will not allow you to cross and i think that in and of itself sends a message that they're going to have to be careful okay i'll give you some other uh rays of sunshine here some optimism <laughs> in um i think the global elite got a little too confident mm-hmm. during the cerveza sickness and so they tried to push these mandates, as we all know. And remember at the beginning, most people were like, eh, whatever. I'm 50 years old. I got five years till I retire. I, I'm not going to be a stand-up. I'm not going to be a patriot. I'm not going to be a freedom fighter. I just give me the stupid jab and let me get back to my daily life and picking my kids up from school and watching the football game on Sunday. 
And that's when those mandates really started to gain traction. We saw that with the airlines and we saw it mm-hmm. with the federal employees and all of these things. And then the I think the global elite said, okay, we've conditioned them to accept this in their own life. Now let's take the next step and push it on their kids. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden it's mandatory to for your kid to go into a restaurant in New York City that they have to have the jab, or maybe in some cases to go to school, they have to wear a jab or they have to wear, it's, it starts impacting their two-year-old or their five-year-old. And I think that was the line in the sand for society at large, where they said, no, 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 no. You can make me get it all you want, but you are not going to force this upon my kid. That's the line in the sand. And I think that was the turning point where people started to push back enough where it really made a political difference. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because you can see the global elite themselves fall victim to hubris. Mm-hmm. And that they, they, they oh, oh, we're making all this progress. Let's take it one more step. And bam, they get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. So I think that could be one thing that would benefit us from a, if we go into this central bank ledger system software, CBDC, is they'll gain this traction and then they'll they'll take all these quick steps and they'll try to run before they walk and they will cross some line that I don't know what it is, Robert, mm-hmm. but they'll cross some line that is, that, that, that um, makes an emotional impact on the average Joe and Jane. Not just the the guy or gal that listens to your podcast or my podcast, mm-hmm. just just the average guy out there working nine to five, where you say, "What you're you're wanting me to do? Huh? No, right. no, 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 no." And usually that involves kids. Yeah. So we'll have to see how this plays out. But I think that one of our greatest assets, our greatest tools, is the is the hubris and the arrogance. Mm-hmm of our global elite opponents. Beautifully said. Um, You know, as someone that talks a lot about these topics, as you do as well, and I hope our discussions are fruitful and helpful and valuable for a lot of people, you can't just talk about it. You got to be about it, right? You have to really take action in this world and stand up against that which you do not agree with on principle. Um, yeah. And I think, and I think I th- the way people do that is everyone's, you know, some people have five minutes a week. Some people have five hours a week. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone's different, but at least, you know, try to start talking about it in, in a non obnoxious way, maybe <laughs> to your significant other and your kids start there. Mm-hmm. And then maybe once you make some headway, maybe start talking about it on your lunch break. Mm-hmm. With, with your coworkers at Home Depot or whatever, mm-hmm. and just just kind of plant the seed, and that's one of the the I think one of the best things about Bitcoin is you you sink the hook with people thinking they can use this as a get rich quick scheme, mm-hmm. but once they dive down the rabbit hole, maybe they're <laughs> initially interested because they want to get rich quick, but right. then they start getting into the fundamentals yeah. of what we're talking about. And then it opens their eyes 
up to this entire conversation. And now all of a sudden, just because you planted that seed with that coworker at Home Depot, three months later, now they're subscribing to Ron Paul's podcast or that. And so I think that, you know, so many people say, well, oh, well, what can I do? What can I do? I don't have a podcast or I don't know. Mm. That's something that everybody can do. Just start at your family. And then just as your circle gets wider and wider, just keep pushing it. So your family and your friends and your coworkers, maybe the people at church. And then that's how I think in aggregate total, if everyone can reach two or three people, yeah, that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, we all start in Bitcoin, at least with Bitcoin number go up, right? That's the hook. That's what draws you in. But this, you can, if you stick with it long enough, you reach this point of becoming radicalized on state power go down. Right. And that's, that's, what's really important for human flourishing. It seems like that most of the atrocities we've seen across history is when the state becomes too big, too arrogant, too hubristic and tyrannical ultimately. And I guess it's our duty at this point in history to kind of take our own stand. Um, And I think it's also our duty to make sure that our fellow citizens don't demand that tyranny. Right. I mean, we go back to the lockdowns, Robert, and and people were demanding that the government lock them in a cage. It blew my mind. So so let's just start by making sure people don't demand tyranny. Yeah. (laughs) Once we get to that point, then we can work on, uh, you know, the other parts of a top-down tyranny. But let's prevent it from being bottoms up. And let me tip my hat to you once again, because you were very outspoken during that saga. And... um, very important work you were doing just to stand up and say, fuck you, not doing it. Right. You, not only did you draw your line in the sand, but you were very vocal about it. And so I, I commend you for that. Thank you. Um, on the truckers piece, you know, like I wonder if that trucker, that the trucker protest that started in Canada, that was catching fire all over the world. A big part of breaking that was the seizing of their bank accounts, the freezing of those assets and the freezing of con- people that contributed to the protest, the freezing of their assets. I I can't help but wonder what would have been different had we been on more of a Bitcoin standard at that time. Like the state would have been much less uh, capable of, of shutting down that, that, that movement. Assuming um, we didn't have the network set up yet. Because remember, it's it's not just in a central bank digital currency. It really has nothing to do with the currency. It has everything to do with the network. And if the system, if the authoritarians can lock you out of the network, it, you can't buy anything, regardless of how much money you have, even if you have access to your bank account. Because again, you give your fingerprint, and all of a sudden the red light comes up and says that they can't sell Chipotle to you. Right. Well, I... Understood on that, but there would have at least been a parallel system in place, right? Where people would have had some Bitcoin and could have transacted with one another in whatever limited economic capacity there yes, was available. Yes, there would definitely be a black market. Yeah. That would. But that's another thing that I think people should prepare for, Robert. And I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. And I know we're kind of running short on time here, but I'll yeah. try to summarize quickly. Is I think people should plan for uh, you know everything that we've talked about, but they should. And I I hate to say this, I, I really do, but if there's someone that is that really prioritizes freedom and liberty, and if they have no other option than to stay in the United States for the rest of their lives, 
I do think they need, if freedom and privacy is, is of utmost importance to them, I think they do need to have a game plan for lowering their standard of living. Mm. Hm. I, I hate to say that because mm. like the example I give is I know there would be a black market that would spring up, but think about all the things you buy right now and the services you have access to and what percentage of those would exist on a black market? Probably less. That's right. And so if you want to put your foot down, you've got to kind of go through a checklist and say, okay, what do I enjoy right now? What adds value to my life? What increases or what goes into my standard of living that the government isn't going to like? Mm -hmm. And then try to kind of use game theory and say, okay, what of that, what's going to be on the black market and what isn't? Right. And then how am I going to have to maybe ratchet down my expectations? And maybe I should start right now by changing or trying to change the things that bring joy into my life and maybe allocating a, a, a lower percentage to material things and maybe a higher percentage to, you name it, friends, family, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. human relationships. Uh, I remember there was a singer that I really liked growing up and I went to see him in concert one time in Vegas and he was telling a story about when he was a little kid uh, growing up in Greece and one of the best lessons he learned from his father. And he said that his father took him up to, right at the break of dawn in the morning, woke him up, maybe he was 10 years old, and he took him to the highest little hill within their, their village. And he took him up there just as the sun was coming up over the hill so he could see the sunrise. And he told the kid, if this makes you happy, you're going to be a very happy man the rest of your life. Huh. And I always remembered that. And I, I think that maybe this will be a blessing to a lot of people that it will remind them of what's really important. That is uh, as good of a place to end it as I think we'll ever have. <laughs> George, fucking great conversation. Yeah, uh, as always, buddy. Yeah, really appreciate this. Um, please tell my audience where they can find you on the internet. You can just type my name anywhere, George Gammon, G-A-M-M-O-N, uh, YouTube. I'm probably going to do less on Twitter <laughs> in the future, but uh, YouTube, you can find me where my podcast is Rebel Capitalist Show, and that's on iTunes and all those things. Awesome. George, thank you so much. Uh, look forward to seeing you soon, my friend. Awesome. Thanks for having me.